Well, I I do want us to dwell today together on the goodness and the faithfulness of God, who he is and what he has done. And that's what we're going to do in our time in Psalm 145 together. You know, we live in an uh, information age, and I love information. Like, I, I think I'm addicted to it. I'm always listening to a podcast, always listening to an audiobook, always reading books, always watching documentaries, whatever. I just, I, I love it. And we have all of this information at our fingertips at all times. Um, but, uh, not that these things are bad, but there is little time in our sort of culture of go, 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 to really just slow down and to stop and to think and to meditate about what God is doing in our lives. And this is what the Psalms provide for us. Um, the Psalms, they are unique, a, a unique genre in the Bible. Um, they aren't letters like in the New Testament with a logic, a flow of argument that we can trace that teach us about certain topics and doctrines, though the Psalms do teach us doctrine. Um, and the Psalms are not uh, historical narratives like in the Old Testament or even in Acts where we're tracing what God is doing through history, though the Psalms do teach us about what God has done. The Psalms are songs. They're poetry that the people of God have been singing and reciting for generations, and they arise out of real-life human experience, and they put us in touch with um, the deepest of human emotion. That's what the Psalms do. They are unique in the scripture. And Psalm 145 is a song of praise, as you've already heard. And this whole day has been about praising the Lord for who he is and what he's done. And what I want us to do together today is join in with David, the author of the Psalm, and the people of God throughout all generations to praise the Lord with our whole lives forever and ever. I want to spur us on to do that this morning. And that's exactly what verses 1 and 2 do. Where David writes, I will extol you, or I will um, praise you enthusiastically, my God and my King. I will bless him every day and to praise his name forever and ever. We need to be reminded to do this, that our whole lives are meant to be um, in worship and in dedication to the Lord, our King. And do we do this? Do we understand what God has done, who he is, and that he is worthy of our daily blessing and endless praise? And David, the psalmist, is going to remind us and help us to meditate on who God is and what he has done. And by the end of the time, as we finish meditating on these things, um, I would love if verses 1 and 2, they would leave in our minds and our hearts and on our lips that we would be praising God enthusiastically, that we would be extolling God for who he is and what he's done. And every single day we wake up, we would bless his name forever and ever. That's our desire. Now, um, there are primarily two reasons that David gives us in this psalm that we should praise the Lord. Primarily two reasons, uh, and they are who God is and what he has done. Who God is and what he has done, his character or his nature and his works, they go hand in hand. They're like uh, the two strands of, of DNA, right? It's, it's one thing, but, but they're, they're two different things that come together and they're inextricably linked. That is God's character and his works, who he is and what he has done. They, they go together and they give us cause to worship and praise him with our whole lives every day. Verse three, 
starts with um, a who he is. And what you're going to see is that David's going to go back and forth in his worship of God, and then in our praising of his greatness, we too must go back and forth. It's who God is, and it's what he has done. It's who God is, and it's what he has done. The two are intricately linked together. Verse 3 starts with a who he is. Look at what it says. Great is the Lord. Great is is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness, who he is, his greatness is unsearchable. If you googled the greatness of God, it, would, it should come back with infinite results. There, there's no end to the amount of God's greatness. It's unsearchable. Though you could type it in the search engine, it, it, would, it would search forever and ever because there is no end to how great God is. He's great. It's who God is. You know, we use the word great in sort of informal ways, you know. Uh, we mean it, you know, great job today, you know, whatever. Like, it, it just kind of is a bit flippant, you know, and there's really not, not much to it, though we can say something is great. But the actual definition of great helps us when talking about the greatness of God. It says this, remarkable or out of the ordinary in degree, magnitude, or effect. <laughs> out of the ordinary in degree. That's what God is. So to restate verse 3 remarkable is the Lord. Completely out of the ordinary in who he is and what he has done is our God. And his remarkableness or his magnitude cannot even begin to be understood. The riches, they're unsearchable, his greatness. Great is the Lord. It's who he is and therefore we praise him for who he is with our mouths and with our lives. Then verses four through seven, they sort of go to the other hand. It was, he is great, it's who he is, but now it's, it's what he has done in verses four through seven. They switch hands and it says, this one generation, we've read this already, shall commend your works to another. They shall declare your mighty acts and on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, David says, I will meditate. And they, this generation, shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. In this song of praise, the people sing that they are going to commend God, God's works, that is what he has done. They're going to tell them to the next generation, and they're going to declare his mighty acts. What has God done in your life? Do you tell the next generation? Do you tell your kids and your grandkids or, or um, your, your friends about what God has done for you? About how he's provided for you? About how he has stood by you and comforted you in times of difficulty and trouble? In your worst moments that he's been there and he's seen you through it? Do you declare these things? You tell them to the next generation? Oh, we should. So we join the people of God and declare what he has done to each other. But most importantly, um, we know about what God has done, not only in our own lives, but in the testimony of scripture. So we should then, as we are declaring to the next generation the mighty works of God, we should then teach our kids and the next generation the Bible as well to recount the faithfulness of God that is ultimately finds its yes and amen, its climax in the person and in the work of Jesus. So we declare God's works to the next generation. 
David goes on and the people go on singing about the wondrous works of God in verse 5. And they say, I will meditate on God's wondrous works. Let's declare today that we are going to take back meditation. Um, when I think of meditation, I think of sort of a, you know, like kind of yoga, like uh, chill vibes, you know, like you, you, this sort of like emptiness in your mind or whatever uh, that, that is, is sort of uh, maybe more popular in our culture when it comes to meditation. But meditating on the wondrous works of God, sitting and stopping and being quiet and thinking about what God has done and how good he is, is biblical. Um, I'm not good at this, like I already said, but I, I think whenever we read scripture, whenever we, um, we, we need to dedicate moments of solitude to, to really reflect and to meditate and to think on what God has done for us, who he is and what he has done. Then, as we meditate, as we think about what God has done, then as David does here, thinking about what God has done moves us right back into thinking about who God is, his character and his nature, which is worthy, again, of our praise. It moves right back, and that's just what happens in verses 4 through 7. You see what he has done. These are just some of the ways that David declares what God has done and who he is. His mighty acts, his wondrous works, his glorious splendor of majesty, his greatness, his awesome deeds, his abundant goodness, and his righteousness. That's just in verses 4 through 7. See, there are, there are um, at the risk of being a little cheesy, there are not enough ways to sing God's praise. There, there are not enough ways, there are not enough words that we can speak, there are not enough songs that we can sing to really get to the bottom of how good God is, who he is and what he's done. And we are to declare his greatness. Do you declare God's greatness with your life? Like if somebody was going to observe your life, would they walk away thinking, God is great? And I can tell by the way that they live their lives, by the things that they do, the, the words that they speak, the, the, the um, kindness and the tenderness that they have. Something is different about them. They, they, they um, declare with their lives that God is great. Or would somebody walk away thinking, eh, God's okay. I mean, if, if, they, if they are like that, then their God must, you know, I guess he's fine. Or worse yet, God? Is there, any, uh, is there any space in, in our lives where we are declaring the greatness of God? If God has worked wonders in your life, primarily if he has saved you by grace through faith in Christ, made you alive when you were dead in your sins and trespasses, if this is true of you, then you inevitably, because you have been changed by the grace of God, will declare that with your life and with your lips. Which is what we've done here this morning already in our singing of God's praise. We are to be a generation, as verse 7 says, that pours forth the fame, the fame of his abundant goodness. You know, in our culture today, people are famous for being famous. Like there's all these people, I'm not going to name any names, but they didn't do anything to be famous, you know? They have millions and millions of followers on Instagram or whatever, and, uh, or TikTok, and uh, they didn't do anything, you know? They're just famous for being famous, and, um, but God is not like that. <laughs> God is famous, or should be famous, for what he has done. 
He is not, uh, he is not an inconsequential, uh, you know, J- Jesus is not some inconsequential celebrity that just got famous for, for being alive like some in our culture today. No, Jesus is famous and we should continue to make him famous because of who he is and what he's done. His goodness to us should be famous. We should make known and celebrate God's abundant goodness to us in Christ. You know those people that are always talking about how good God is? You know this, do you know any of those people that just can't stop talking about what God has done? I know, so annoying, right? You know, in the best of times, these people, when everything is going great, they say, yes, God has been so good to us. We're so undeserving. I mean, it's ridiculous. The blessings that he's given us, we so don't deserve it. God has been so good to us. And then these same people, when things aren't going well, they say things like, this has been terrible time. I mean, it's been awful for me, for our family, but we're taking it one step at a time. And, um, and we know that God is good. We know that he's good and that he's working, even though this has been terrible. But we've already seen little glimpse of God's goodness along the way. You know, these are people that have really been changed by the greatness of God. Um, and these are the people that we need to be. Those people are the worst. No, they're not. They're people that have been changed by Jesus, and they can't help but make what he has done famous in their lives. We are to pour forth the abundant fame of his goodness. David then moves back in verses 8 and 9 to talk about who God is. Again, quoting from Exodus 34, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. He is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Aren't you glad that God is gracious and merciful? Not only do we not get what we deserve, that would be mercy, but we also get credit in our account. That's grace. What I mean is, um, what happens when we trust in Jesus to save, some call it the great exchange, we are... um, in and of ourselves, born sinful, and we are therefore deserving of punishment. And when we don't get what we deserve, um, if God was only merciful, okay, if he only had mercy and not grace, then what would happen is he would, he would rescue us from hell, but then he would sort of put us on, a, on an even playing ground. And some people live their lives like this and they think that this is true. Like, like God somehow, he, he was merciful, so he, he plucked me out of hell, which I was deserving of. And then he laid me on a, on a flat foundation of, of neutrality, like I'm at zero. And then it's up to me to either work my way to heaven or, or I could slip back in uh, and be deserving of punishment again. If God was only merciful, then this would be the way that it is. We don't get what we do deserve, but then it's up to us to figure it out along the way. But God is not only merciful, but he is also gracious. So not only does he not give us what we do deserve, not only does he rescue us from eternal punishment in hell, but then he also credits Jesus' righteousness to our account, such that now when God the Father looks at us, he does not see us, he sees the, the, the perfect um, record of his Son, such that now there is no working our way into or out of the love that God has for us. That's grace. There, there is no, um, if God has rescued you and showed you mercy and grace, then there is nothing you can do to screw that up. 
There's nothing you can do to, to work your way out of God's grace that he has shown you. This is our position in Christ. That's, God, that's good news. That's who God is. He is not only merciful, but he is also gracious. And if you trust in Jesus to save, then this is your story as well. God is also, it says, slow to anger. Slow to anger. Now, he does get angry over sin, and God ultimately will execute justice, as we'll see. He will punish the wicked, but he is slow to do it. He is slow to anger. Now, I am glad that this is true of God. I am glad that he is slow to anger. Because when, because um, it took me a while to figure it out. And I'm sure that a, a lot of you have similar stories. Uh, but when the Lord saved me, I first started hearing the gospel. I first started, um, somebody invited me to church when I was in seventh, eighth grade. And it took me like, almost a good two years before I I really was able to jump in. Now, in that two years, God, if he was not slow to anger, like like if I was watching my life and I was God, I'd be like, okay, this guy's never going to make it. (laughs) Like, let's just, let's, he's not going to get it. Let's give up on him and move on to the next one. But God is slow to anger. He, He is, um, he, he is not quick to execute his, his justice. He's not quick to pour out his wrath. He's slow. He is slow to anger. And this is good. Um, and we can praise God that he is not like us. That um, it, it is not just another mere human that is judging our lives and, and trying to get us to go in the right direction. That, that's, that's not what's happening. Um, we should praise God that he is slow to anger. God is not like us. We are quick to anger. He is slow. We have too little love to give, and he is abounding in it. And he abounds specifically in steadfast love. Now, I don't normally do this, but this is, this is a fun one. Um, the, the Hebrew word underlying his steadfast love is chesed. Okay? And you've got to hock up a loogie when you say it as well. Okay? You've got to get it back of your throat. Chesed. And this is his steadfast love. CSB translated his, um, his covenant love or his faithful love. The NLT, shout out to my uh, life group that likes the NLT. It's his unfailing love. Steadfast, unfailing, faithful, covenant love. This is the kind of love that God is abounding in. He is not abounding in the sort of fickle love that you and I experience that's based on feelings and emotions and it can come and go and it's not transactional. You know, the love that God has for you is not based on what you can do for him. And that's often how we view love. It's like, okay, what can you do for me? And, And the better you do, then the more I love you. That's not God's steadfast, unfailing love. That's not his hesed. This is an unconditional covenant love that God has for his people. A type of love that God has says, I am upholding my end of the bargain no matter what. I will do whatever it takes to love you forever. That's the kind of love that God is abounding in. It's not just that he possesses it sometimes. He abounds in that kind of love, that unfailing, faithful covenant love that is going to uphold his end no matter what. That's the love that God has for you and for me if we are in Christ. 
an unconditional, faithful, unfailing covenant love. Remember, we're looking at reasons to praise the Lord with our lips and with our lives. It's who he is and it's what he's done. And what he has done goes back then, back into verses 10 through 13. Um, David transitions back into what he has done. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. All God's works give thanks to him. All the saints shall bless you. You know, all of us who have faith in Christ are saints. The Catholic Church got that one a little bit wrong. We are all saints, okay? If we are in Christ, we are all saints. And so the Bible calls us here, all his saints shall bless you. They shall speak well about who God is and what he has done. And we saints are to bless God, to speak well of God. And verse 11 says that we are to speak of the glory of his kingdom and to tell of his power. Now at this point, we need to read this Old Testament text with our New Testament lenses on. That's where I wore my glasses today. These are New Testament lenses, okay? Which is how we should read the Bible through Christ. So as we read this psalm and we talk about the kingdom of God, we know um, that verse 1 has already said that God is king of his people. God is king. But now we know more specifically what that means and what that looks like because of the New Testament. We know that Jesus came and brought the kingdom of God near. Jesus came and brought the kingdom of God into our midst. And we know that Jesus himself is king. Such that those who give their allegiance to Jesus as king are a part of a kingdom that is on the one hand not of this world, but on the other hand, is in our midst and is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. It's breaking in as we give our allegiance to Jesus and as we follow him as king. It is here in our midst. But on the other hand, you can't see it, can you? Where is the kingdom of God? Well, it's, it's not of this world, but at the same time, it is here and we are a part of it. It's the most real and tangible thing that we could ever experience as we gather together as the people of God. And this kingdom, God's kingdom, is a glorious kingdom. It's one with a suffering servant king who did not come with military might, as the disciples thought that he would. He did not come with military might or political power to overthrow the rulers, but we have a king that humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. And we have a king who called his subjects, you and I, to a self-sacrificial love of praying for those who are our enemies and loving those who persecute us. This is a glorious kingdom, but it is not the kingdom that we would have expected. It's not the kingdom that the world would would say is a glorious kingdom, yet it is the most glorious kingdom that there ever could be. It is a kingdom that's like a mustard seed. It doesn't look like much, but then when when it grows, it becomes larger than any other plants and it becomes a tree doesn't look like much, but it actually becomes the biggest and most important reality in our lives. This kingdom, the kingdom of God that we are a part of, if we pledge Jesus as our king, it's like a treasure that's hidden in a field, which a man finds, 
and then he covers it up, and then he goes, and in his joy, he buys that whole field. This kingdom is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. And then when he finds the pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought that pearl. I'm not making these up. These are Jesus' parables in Matthew 13 about the kingdom of God. It's a kingdom with a powerful king, as verse 11 says. And this powerful king, again, does not come with political might or power. He comes with the power to break the chains of slavery to sin and to set captives free, to bring about true life, abundant life and freedom in Christ. That's our king. And so we speak of this kingdom and this power, as verse 12 says, we make known these mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of this kingdom, and it is an everlasting kingdom. And the dominion of Jesus endures throughout all generations. And we do need to constantly remember, you and I, that we are subjects in the kingdom of God. We need to constantly remember that Jesus is our king. He has the ultimate allegiance in our lives. We must remember that his kingdom is an upside-down kingdom where humility and service are rewarded and the the proud and the powerful are actually brought low. See, in this kingdom, the way up is down. This kingdom is unexpected and though it may seem insignificant and though this kingdom may seem like it's not growing, though this kingdom may seem like you you may look out in the culture and in the world and say, what is going on? Are we losing? (laughs) Just like Mark 4, this kingdom is like if a man should scatter seed on the ground, he sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, and he knows not how. See, no matter whether we can see the kingdom of God advancing, growing, moving, it is happening. No matter if we we know what God is doing in our midst all of the time, of course we we do know and we come together and declare it every Sunday morning and we, we worship God for what he's doing, but throughout the week, we don't, we don't know. We just do our part to, to scatter the seed, to work, to plow, to be faithful subjects in the kingdom of God. And then in the end, all of a sudden, this kingdom is like a, it's like a tree, it's like a mustard seed. It didn't look like much, but now it's the, the biggest and most important reality in our lives. And we know that Jesus is this promised Davidic king who is reigning and will reign forever. And there will be a time in the end, but we work for a time now that every knee confess, every knee bow and tongue confess that Jesus is king, that he is Lord. So we praise him. We praise God for what he has done. And then in verses 14 through 20, what we end up seeing is that who he is and what he has done, they are the same thing. That, that, they, that they go together again like this strand of DNA. And now we see in verses 14 through 20, not only are we praising God for who he is and what he has done, but now we praise God for who he is and what he is doing, present tense, what he does still in our midst today. Look at what God does. He upholds all who are falling, verse 14. And he raises up all who are bowed down. He's talking with... Um, one of our members this week that felt like uh, he had finally given everything over to the Lord. He was completely like, this is it, I can't do it anymore, completely bowed down. And then that very day, the Lord um, blessed him in, an un, in a surprising and unexpected way. He lifted up those who are fallen down. Again, the way up is down in the kingdom of God. 
This is what the Lord does. The Lord is the provider of all. He's the provider of all. Verse 15, the eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. Every living thing is provided for by God. Emily Claire and I planted a garden in our back, the back corner, you know, it's, and it, it's real, I'm pretty proud of us. It looked really nice. The first time we've ever done anything like that. And uh, every morning it's teeming with butterflies and dragonflies and bees and, and all kinds of, you know, bugs and wildlife. And we can sit there and uh, enjoy it. Knox likes to go out and, you know, check on it every morning and see what's going on. And uh, as we look and see the, the food that those insects are eating, our, our hearts and our minds, according to this text, should be pointed back to God to say, The Lord is the one that provides for all living things. Then verse 17 again gives us the combination of who he is and what he does together. The Lord is righteous, who he is, in all his ways, what he does. They're the the same thing, who he is and what what he does. This is who God is. The Lord is righteous in all his ways. His character and his nature go hand in hand. This means that everything he does is right. Everything God does is right. And is just. It is impossible for the Lord to do something unrighteous or immoral because it would violate his character and his nature. And his character, his nature, and his works go hand in hand. Now, even if, now, if you, uh, you might disagree with that statement experientially. You might say, no, the things that have happened to me, the things that God has done to me or happened in my life, things that God has allowed, there's no way that he sees those as good and right. And this is where we must trust the character and the nature of God and his sovereignty and his providence. Even if God does and allows things that we wouldn't choose, that's a good thing because if things only happen in our lives that we would choose, that means that we have a God that's created in our own image, which would be no God at all. Because a God that we can wrap our minds around, a God that um, would only do the things that we would do, is a God that looks very much like ourselves, and that is no God at all. And I promise you, you would not make a good God. And some of us have tried it and, and proven to, to fail. And verse 18 gives us a great comfort. He is near to all who call on him, who call on him in truth. There are echoes here of Jesus having a conversation with a Samaritan woman. If you remember in John, I think, 4, um, the Samaritan woman had certain ideas about how worship should happen. And then Jesus responds to her, well, there's a time coming and is actually now here um, where worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. It's not about doing it this certain way or being at this certain place. Uh, it, it's about worshiping in spirit and in truth. And this is the same idea here. It doesn't matter who you are or where you are. You can call on God in truth and he will hear you and be near to you. His presence will be with you if you are calling on him in truth. You do have to call on him in truth, though. Um, You do need to know him truly. You know, there are people in some groups that say that they know Jesus, but they're certainly not worshiping the same Jesus that I am. Um, So be careful to know the real Jesus who is found in his word and revealed by his spirit. We're going to wrap up, I promise. Verse 19, he fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. Isn't this good news? That um, the Lord hears our cry and he saves those who cry out to him. Those who fear him, he hears their cry and he saves them. There is nothing that you truly need in this life that the Lord will not give you. 
Do you fear the Lord? Are you in awe before him? Do you tremble in worship before him for who he is and what he has done? If so, you can have confidence that the Lord will fulfill your desires. If your desires line up with the revealed will of God in Scripture, you can have confidence that he will see it through, that there is nothing that you truly need in this life that he will not provide for you. Now, do you desire to be rich and famous? Well, does God promise us riches and fame? No. So you're not calling on him in truth then, if, if those are your desires. So you can't expect for those to be fulfilled. And if you are calling out to him for such fickle and earthly desires, um, this probably means that you don't properly fear him. You don't properly understand who he is and truly his holiness and his goodness. Remember the way of his kingdom is humility and service. The way up is down. That's the way of Jesus. As we conclude, we're going to respond in, in worship as verse 21 calls us. But verse 20 wraps up David's song where he says, The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. So do you love God this morning? Do you love God? Is your heart filled with, um, with love for him, for who he is and what he has done? I, I, I pray that this is true. And if this is true of you, then the Lord will preserve you. He will save you. He will keep you. No one can snatch you out of his hand, John 10. If you love him. But at the same time, all the wicked he will destroy. So if you, if you, are not, if you don't love God this morning... Um, then I would urge you to, to, to give your life to this God. To give your life to God who has proven his faithfulness in Christ, who has risen from the dead to save sinners who are completely undeserving, you and I in the same boat, deserving of eternal punishment and deserving of this dis- destruction spoken of in verse 20 because we are all wicked by nature. But because of what Jesus has done and by grace through faith in him, apart from no works of our own, we can be preserved. We can be saved. So I would urge you, if you never have, to cry out, as verse 19 says, to cry out to God to save you. And the promise here is that he will. He will save you. And if you love him, he will preserve you. Give your allegiance to this servant king of the universe who gave his life to save sinners, like you and me. And then... In response, let us join with David in verse 21. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. May that be true of us. Will you pray with me? We hope you are encouraged and challenged by what you heard today. If you'd like more information about Champion Forest Baptist Church, our service times, or how you can get connected, visit us at championforest.org. Thanks so much. Have a great day and God bless.